This episode is brought to you by IG. IG Smart Portfolios are a range of multi-asset strategies based on asset allocation insights from BlackRock. The portfolios are transparently designed around your risk profile and investment objectives. If you're a UK investor, you can open an account from the link in our description and get 50% off management fees for the next 12 months. That's just 0.25% in fees. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. Terms and conditions in the description below. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Ever feel like investing in something unusual? From unlisted shares to commercial property to infrastructure, investment trust could be your answer. Lately, performance has waned and many are available at chunky discounts. I want to know if investment trusts are poised for a rebound. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a long-term asset fund? All right, let's get into it. So I guess the place to start here, Romin, is what is an investment trust? Because the weird thing in the UK when it comes to investing is we have all these different wrappers for collective investments that are named similar things but are structured entirely differently. So what is this one we're talking about? What's an investment trust? It is an investment company. So it's a company, first of all. It trades on an exchange just like any other stock. It has management. It has a board. It is a collective investment scheme. So they collect investor money and then they invest it on behalf of their shareholders in order to get a good return. That's the goal. And in return, they earn a management fee. These are all active funds. There aren't any passive investment trusts. And they've been around a long time, haven't they? I read that they've existed for more than 150 years and are probably the oldest form of collective investment that there is. And in some ways, structuring it as a company makes sense because you've got a fixed pool of capital. If you want to get more capital through the door to buy more stuff, well, one way to do that is to issue more shares. But other than that, if people want to buy some of your company, which is what it is, then they can just buy some of the shares. But someone else has to sell those shares to them. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? The shares are trading on the secondary market and the share price can go above or below the value of the stuff in the fund, or at least what the investment trust thinks is the value of the stuff in the fund. And that's really the problem, because if it's illiquid stuff, stuff which takes a long time to sell or which hardly ever sells, then what's it worth? If you've got a hotel, what's that hotel worth? If you've got some form of infrastructure like a bridge, well, what's the bridge worth? So that's really the problem. You've got to trust them, not just to manage your money, but to work out what the value of the stuff is that they own. And I guess the question is, do you trust the investment trust to do that? And how does this differ from a unit trust then, which is what some index funds are structured as, for example? I haven't heard of unit trusts for a long time, but you know, open-ended funds would include unit trusts, but it would also include things like exchange-traded funds. But those expand or contract according to popularity. So with unit trusts, you can just create another unit if there's lots of interest. With exchange-traded funds, you can create another set of units if there's lots of interest. And you can create and redeem those units as interest waxes and wanes in the investment. And when you say you can create them, you mean the fund manager can create them? Yes, the fund manager, or in the case of an ETF, it's an authorised participant. But that's the mechanics. You can make more units or destroy units. And so with these open-ended structures, the share price should track the value of the stuff in the fund, really, shouldn't it? 
Definitely. And if it doesn't, then there is an arbitrage trade that you can do, or at least some people can do. These authorised participants for ETFs, for example, if the value of the things inside the ETF are cheaper than the value of the ETF itself, well, what they can do is buy the basket of stuff for a low price, deliver that to the fund management company, which gives them a unit of the fund or a set of units, and they can make an almost risk-free profit from that. And that snaps the two back into line with each other. But for investment trusts, which are closed-ended and have a fixed pool of capital, as we said, that's not what happens. The share price is moving up and down at a premium or a discount, it's called, to the net asset value. That's exactly right. And if a fund is really popular and lots of people want to get their hands on it, then they'll bid up the price relative to the NAV. So it'll trade at a premium to the net asset value. And a lot of investment trusts were in that position, maybe a couple of years ago, where they were trading at a premium to their net asset value. That doesn't seem to be the case now. Yeah, that's an understatement if ever I heard one. I was just looking at the discounts right now for the investment trust market as a whole in the UK, and it is just abysmal. Almost all of the investment trusts, the big ones at least, are trading at a big discount to net asset value. So it's been a big turnaround. At the start of 2022, there was effectively no discount for the average investment trust in the UK. So it was trading at fair value at least according to the fund's assessment of its net asset value. But now, in October 2023, the average discount is around 14% versus the NAV. So as we make this podcast, if you take a snapshot of all investment trusts in the UK, which are worth more than a billion in market cap, only one of them is trading at a premium. And that's the biggest one, and that's 3i. Everything else is either very close to net asset value or deeply below net asset value. So how do you look at this then when there's a discount to NAV? Do you think, oh, that's definitely a bargain? Or do you think, oh, well, maybe the market doesn't think that assets are worth as much as the fund managers do? Well, at the back of your mind, you're always thinking, is this an asset class which is dying? Is there a structural reason why this would be depressed for a very long time? And in the case of the UK, that is a worry. Firstly, UK stocks are very unloved. Secondly, there's been a change in the wealth management industry in the UK with a lot of consolidation, such that if you're a very large wealth manager, a lot of these funds are quite tiny in terms of market cap. So if you've got 100 billion to invest, well, buying any of these funds which are worth less than 400 million, you'd be using up a lot of the liquidity in that market and you'd end up with a huge chunk of the individual funds. Yeah, you'd basically just be buying the investment trusts outright, wouldn't you? Exactly. And they're just too small. That's the problem. Also, there's been a change in the way fees are reported. So let's say that an open-ended fund buys one of these investment trusts. Well, then it has to report the fees on fees. Previously, it didn't have to do that. So that can make them look very expensive. And a lot of them do have very expensive fees anyway. But they would argue, well, we're running a company. Of course, a company is going to have ongoing costs. Because when an open-ended fund buys just a normal stock, it doesn't have to report its operating fees in its fund fee. That's the argument. But then you're thinking, well, with any investment company, the fees are what matters. And this is just an investment company. Yeah, I was just trying to be devil's advocate. (laughs) I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like Baroness, whatever it was that said that, yeah. yeah. So I don't really buy that argument. But I think that's been a headwind for some of these in terms of marketing. Now, the UK discount, I think, probably will go away at some point because the UK is okay, right? I mean, it's not a complete disaster zone. 
However, I think these changes in the way the fees are reported, the consolidation of the wealth management industry, all of that is a structural problem. And the fact they're based in the UK doesn't mean they just invest in UK assets, does it? A lot of these investment trusts hold global unlisted stocks and global commercial property, whatever it might be. Oh, absolutely. For example, the second largest one is Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. And that's one that I own. (laughs) Don't start crying. Uh, I don't love it right now, but (laughs) I certainly own it. And a very small amount. But that one, obviously, is the UK's answer to Cathie Woods. And it buys growth stocks across the world, some of them in unlisted form, very illiquid. For example, it has a slice of SpaceX. But that's international. It buys stocks from all over the world. I mean, presumably the big macro problem facing all investment trusts is higher interest rates. That's obviously hit asset values across the board. And the other thing to consider is that a lot of these investment trusts use gearing. So they basically borrow money to invest, which can amplify your returns and amplify your losses. And that hurts in various ways. A lot of these investment trusts were attractive because they generated high yields, particularly for infrastructure projects. And now that government bonds are giving you 5%, well, they've got to give quite a bit more in order to be attractive. But then, as you say, they are companies, which means that they can borrow on the open market or take out bank loans, and that way they can amplify their gains and losses. Scottish Mortgage does that, for example. So if you have the double whammy, which is that they buy assets which themselves are interest rate sensitive, like real estate or commercial property, then the value of the property has fallen, the cost of funding, the leverage for the investment trust has increased, That's going to be a drag on return. And of course, the leverage itself is going to amplify the losses on the assets. So really, it's a perfect storm for those companies in those infrastructure sectors. Yeah, everyone loves investment trusts when everything's well with the world because the gearing boosts your returns. But when that turns around, it's not so pretty. And I guess with these big discounts to NAV, it means that it's not easy for them to raise equity either if they were trying to turn away from debt. Now, who's going to be running to hand over capital to a company which is levered and also which is unloved? You know, you don't want to give capital to a company that looks like it's on the skids. But the key thing about the interest rate is that they won't always be very, very high. There will come a time when they do start to fall again. And at the moment, we're still reeling from the shock of increasing rates. At a certain point, I think we'll just get used to rates being higher and they may fall back a little bit. Yeah, if you're on the hunt for a bargain, a lot of people are saying, investment trusts in the UK may present an opportunity right now. One of the interesting things about investment trusts versus their open-ended counterparts is that investment trusts are allowed to retain up to 15% of their income, and then they can distribute that cash to shareholders in later years. Whereas with an open-ended fund, they're paying out the money as they earn it. So they can kind of make a little buffer, can't they, the investment trusts, to keep the dividend going, despite the fact earnings are down which smooths out the dividends, which can be a good thing if they manage it well. Perhaps the most obvious reason why the discounts are so big right now is that performance has been poor, right? (laughs) People are not buying the narrative anymore. Also, they're kind of complex, I think, because they're not so transparent in terms of what they own. And the stuff they own is illiquid. And you're just thinking, well, do I want to stuff my portfolio with illiquid investments with a high management fee? where there isn't that kind of transparency that you get with, say, an index tracker? And I think the answer for a lot of people is no. I mean, the argument some people make, usually the ones running the investment trusts, is that they (laughs) diversify a portfolio, right? If you invest in infrastructure, 
it might not crash, or at least not to the same extent as equity does. I'm not totally convinced by that. I mean, just looking at the returns of some of them recently, you can see how much they've fallen, more than the broad market in the UK, for example. And they're languishing for a reason, you know, the many reasons we've discussed. So I don't really buy the fact that they diversify. They are risky assets on the whole. Some of them will buy low-risk investments, but even the dividend-paying bond-like ones at the moment are heavily depressed because of the higher interest rates. Just when I cast an eye over the list of them, most of them look like they've invested in what you might call long-duration assets, where the cash flows are going to be way out into the future. And, you know, with higher interest rates, those cash flows are going to get discounted a lot, and it hurts the value of the fund. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the reasons. Growth stocks in particular, if you buy growth stocks, they are often described as having a lot of duration because the big cash flows hopefully are in the future, well into the future. Are you in the market for more? Our sponsor for today's episode is IG. IG are known for their trading and share dealing platform, but they also have the IG smart portfolios for UK investors. These are expertly managed investments tailored to your needs. The IG Smart Portfolios are designed by BlackRock and fully managed by IG. Each portfolio caters for a different risk appetite, ranging from conservative to aggressive, and follows an investment strategy suited to your goals and profile. You'll be able to manage your investment account fully online, with transparency over asset allocation, performance and fees. Whether you're saving for retirement, a new house, or want to build up a savings pot, They'll offer you the most suitable strategy for your investment goals. You can open a regular smart portfolio, an ISA, or a SIP account, or all three. What's more, IG smart portfolios will give you 50% off management fees for the next 12 months when you open an account from the link in our episode description. That's a management fee of just 0.25%. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. Terms and conditions in the episode description. I mean, let's imagine we're the management running one of these investment trusts. Presumably, we hate this discount to net asset value. We'd much rather the share price traded in line with it, right? So what can we do to close that gap? Well, one thing they can do is to buy back their own stocks. They do have cash, which they can use to do that. For example, Scottish Mortgage has been doing that quite recently. Is it working? No. (laughs) It's funny because I tweeted about it. They have to announce it when they do it. And I worked out the proportion of their stocks, which they bought. And it was so tiny, I just thought, well, what's the point? You know, this is just a token action on their part. At least it allows them to write down, we're buying back our own stock. We believe in our own fund management. Well, that doesn't surprise anyone. I mean, it's interesting that between January and August this year, investment trusts bought back a total of £2.4 billion of shares. And that is up almost 50% on the same period last year. That's according to winter flood data. So it seems that they are trying to close the gap through share buybacks. And it makes sense to do that when the prices are depressed. If there was a hugely buoyant market, then it wouldn't make sense to do the buybacks, of course. But if you believe in your fund and there's a massive discount, why wouldn't you buy them back? Like If it's trading at 15% discount, you're not going to find investments where you could be sure of a 15% return, right? I know they can't rely on the discount closing, but they've got to pretend that they think it's going to, right? Yeah, I think that's the justification for it. And it does make sense to the shareholders as well. If they're buying back their own shares at a discount, that's value creating. 
Assuming the net asset value is right, of course, it might not be calculated correctly. It might be over-optimistic. They often get a third party to do the calculation. And update it every quarter or something, is it? That's right. And of course, they end up paying for that valuation. So (laughs) I don't know how diligent the person calculating it would be. It's weird, isn't it? The incentives are not that well aligned with investors. So the investment trust is paying someone to say, yeah, your assets look really, really good. (laughs) It's like credit ratings. You know, you pay for the credit rating. And so, of course, the rating agency will be incentivized to give you a favorable one. So who knows how accurate those NAVs are. I never really trust them, but it is kind of interesting just to compare the price with the NAV, even if it's not completely reliable. I think a lot of people do invest based on the discounts. Certainly on the Pension Craft forums, you see discounts and NAV mentioned all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a useful measure. You can also look at the individual assets, but of course there the transparency is a problem. You can't always dig into the assets and they're not always easily valuable the assets themselves. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be able to value a shopping mall. No matter, even if I had all the data, I'm not going to be able to say what it's worth. Yeah, another train wreck that I own, sorry, uh, Investment Trust, is Tritax Big Box. And that one, they own all of these large storage sites, which are next to motorways, where you store stuff temporarily for companies that ship stuff out to their customers. Yeah, big boxes, basically. Yeah, big boxes. But how do you value a big box? It's not easy. So what made you buy it then? Well, I bought it after its price crashed and it was trading at a big discount to NAV. And I thought, well, there's still this long term trend in the UK, which is more people shopping online. How do they get that stuff to their customers? Well, they store it in these warehouses. So I just thought there'd be a long term trend, which would be favourable for these companies. But then it crashed more. So (laughs) that wasn't such a smart thing. Things can always crash more. Indeed. And I think you called one very well indeed, Michael. Well, we did an episode, didn't we, on music royalties. And in the UK, there's a few investment trusts which are focused on investing in music catalogues. So they buy the rights to songs and then exploit them around the world and return the royalties to shareholders. And maybe the most prominent was Hypnosis Songs. And when we did the episode a good few months ago now, you asked me, would I invest? And I thought, well, I think they've overpaid for their assets. And I think they've maybe overleveraged. And it does seem to be playing out that way. So it's trading at like a ridiculous discount to NAV. And just as we're recording this podcast, I've seen the FT report that the shareholders of Hypnosis Songs Fund voted down the Investment Trust's five-year mandate, which means that, you know, it could be wound up if they can't come up with another plan. And it's pretty shocking if you look at the vote that the shareholders had at the meeting. More than 83% of the votes cast were against the continuation of the company. That's not a huge vote in favour of the management, is it? It's the opposite of a vote of confidence. A vote of disconfidence? What is it? Unconfidence? What's the word? No confidence? No confidence. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not a complete catastrophe because all that will happen is any residual value will be passed out to the shareholders when the company's liquidated. What that means, though, if the fund does get wound up, they've got to go and try and sell these music catalogues to other buyers in the market. It might not be the best time to do that right now. Ooh, distressed buyer. Hooray. (laughs) But still, very good call, Michael. I mean, certainly hypnosis isn't the only investment trust to get into trouble and think about winding up. Since 2021, I think 12 investment trusts have decided to liquidate and return the money to shareholders. And there's also been a wave of consolidation. So some funds are kind of merging together rather than winding up. Yeah, that's right. 
The fund manager formerly known as Aberdeen, which rebranded without vowels, which I can no longer pronounce. Aberdeen. They decided to merge their New Dawn and Asia Dragon funds, for example. But I guess in a way, a winding up or a consolidation, a merger with another fund, is not the worst that can happen, is it? Can an investment trust actually go bankrupt? I mean, it's a company, so you'd think, yeah, it can. But then it's investing in a portfolio of other companies or assets. So surely not all of them are going to lose their value. Unfortunately, the leverage isn't going to help. So you could have the assets falling by more than the equity value. So technically, that would be a bankruptcy. So they can go bankrupt because they borrowed too much money on bad terms? And then the assets fell by a leveraged amount and wiped out their equity. Yeah, that would be a problem. Has it happened? Yes, it has. Everything's happened in markets. It happened to quite a high-profile company, I think. Yeah, so Invesco Property Income Trust ran into trouble, this kind of trouble. And it's interesting how they got into that situation. So as I understand it, the trust was originally called Invesco UK Property Income Trust, and only invested in a portfolio of UK offices and industrial estates. And it was actually a boom time for UK property. And obviously they took on leverage and they achieved good returns. But then they struggled to find more UK property to buy because prices were so expensive. So they thought, hmm, what can we do? Let's expand outside the UK. So they spent 210 million euros on French acquisitions, but also some properties in Germany, Belgium and Spain. And its loan to value ratio increased. Now, of course, if you're looking at a company and you see a high LTV, you're always worried about what will happen if the value of the assets falls. LTV's loan to value. So that's how much debt it has as a percentage of its assets? Yeah, so imagine you're buying a house. If the house is worth 500,000 and you've borrowed 450,000, well, markets don't have to fall much with leverage to rack up a pretty big loss. So with this Invesco Trust, its LTV rose from 45% to 63% in the course of a year in 2006, which is all fine unless property values start falling. What happened in 2007? Were you around at this point, Roman? <laughs> I think I was, although I wasn't responsible for this particular deal, I have to say. And of course, the banks aren't very forgiving if you breach loan-to-value covenants. If you go below that level, that critical level that they have in their loan, then they may withdraw the loan. And I think that's more or less what happened. The value of their assets fell. And in 2011, there was a valuation done and the LTV was 97%. So there's not much equity left there, 3%. And actually their other liabilities and debt actually sort of wiped out that remaining 3%. And the net asset value per share turned out to be minus 15.6 pence. There you go. You're basically dead at that point, aren't you? Yep, it was all over. So it just goes to show that just because a fund is diversified, it can still find ways to kill itself. Or it could just be badly managed. It could be that the value of the investments falls dramatically and falls to close to zero. Or you could just have a fund which takes a ridiculous concentration risk on these illiquid assets. So I read about another one, which was the P-Source Structured Debt Trust. Oh dear, structured debt, that's not going to end well. So this launched in 2007, which is just before the global financial crisis blow up and the subprime shenanigans. Perfect timing. And they targeted investment opportunities in US growth companies through secured debt and warrants. But what seems to have done for them is that its largest holding over time ended up in just one company, 
which was a biomass company called Parabell. And that debt was 80% of its portfolio. (laughs) So concentration risk is off the scale there, isn't it? And to make matters worse, it seems that that company was very early stage and hadn't yet generated any revenues. And it was going to go through an IPO process. So the kind of future of the whole investment trust depended on this one IPO. I mean, it goes to show that it's not really the wrapper that matters so much. It's what's in it and how it's managed. And some investment trusts are going to do really well and some aren't, like any asset class. So how do you look at it? I know you've invested in two, is it, you said? Yeah, they're both in my fund portfolio. They were just kind of punts. You know, I just wanted to have a bit of fun and lose money as usual. And I have. And uh, <laughs> You've learned a lot along the way. I've learned a lot from these two. But still, I think I'm going to hold on to them. I don't think that Scottish mortgage is out forever. You know, I think it'll probably recover. Tritax big box as well, probably, but it's paying a pretty big dividend now. But what should people look for when they're scanning their eyes down the list of, I think, 400 investment trusts that are listed in the UK? Yeah, the large ones, there aren't that many, you know, maybe about 100 of them. But what you should look for is what you should look for for any single company investment, which is what's their investment thesis? Do you agree with it? Look at their history of performance. And if you agree with their investment thesis and you like what they own, but also their strategic outlook, you know, what is their kind of reason for existence and how do they invest? And if you're fine with that, then yeah, I think it makes sense. Don't just look at the discount because things can sometimes be cheap for a very good reason. It's tempting to do that though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just think, oh, massive discount. That's definitely going to bounce back. Because most investments don't come with this one number where you can say, oh, it's cheap. Well, stocks do. I mean, valuations are very useful. They are, but they're not really listed in the same way as like an official number, like a discount to NAV. Yeah, true. I mean, a trailing price to earnings ratio is something that's kind of comparable. Forward price to earnings multiple depends on forecasts. But in a similar way, sometimes you have value traps, which are cheap for a reason. So that's why you have to dig into it in more detail than you normally would if you were just buying an index, say, which does recover. And there is an index for the FTSE All Share, which just looks at closed-ended investments, investment trusts, in other words. And you can immediately see the drawbacks with the sector, which is that it's got very few components, only 193 investment trusts. It's quite concentrated. So, for example, Scottish Mortgage makes up about 7% of the entire index, and the top 10 constituents make up about a third of the index. But what it is useful for is you can see the performance of the overall sector. So you can say, well, my investment trust has beaten it or underperformed it, which is sometimes interesting. You can see what's idiosyncratic about your investment relative to the sector as a whole. And what's also interesting is that the investment trust index has actually outperformed the UK stock market since 2013. But recently, it hasn't looked so good. Over the last five years, they're roughly neck and neck. And over the last year, the investment trusts have significantly underperformed. And it's interesting the reasons people do invest in these investment trusts. It seems that a lot of people go for them for the income. Maybe they're retirees or whatever, and they want this steady income. And as we mentioned earlier, investment trusts can actually hold back some of their income to pay it out during the leaner times that might come. People often highlight these certain investment trusts which have a record of paying the same dividend or increasing dividend for decades, don't they? Which is attractive if you're into income. 
Institutional investors also buy them. So if you're a wealth manager, for example, and you're buying on behalf of your clients, often they'll buy investment trusts. And I think wealth managers often buy them, don't they, on behalf of their clients, because it's an easy way of saying, look, we're doing interesting stuff with your money that's going to potentially outperform. We're not just buying an index fund for our fee. And for some reason, they're always very well branded. For example, one of the ones I like is Up, and they're a kind of wealth protection fund where if things go bad, they're, in theory, going to outperform, or at least they won't lose as much. And until quite recently, they've done very well. They've generated a pretty good return when things weren't in a period of crisis. And then during crises, they chose the right investments. It went a little bit wrong recently, and they've underperformed. In fact, it was just after I interviewed them. But there's just a great narrative, and they have kind of star investors. They have Jonathan Ruffer, who often publishes his ideas and who's incredibly articulate. And I think he always makes a good case. That's the thing with investment trusts. They have to kind of talk you in to giving them your money. And they do a good job of it. <laughs> but I think in many cases, it's ended quite badly. It's funny that you said their performance turned around once you spoke to them. I mean, we talked about doing more interviews. Are we going to get anyone to come and talk to us if their portfolios crash as soon as they talk to you? Yeah, we'll be the Jonas. We're going to curse their returns forever. We'll be like mermaids singing the sirens. Song, right. Come to the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Closed-ended, open-ended investment trusts. If you want to learn more about all of these terms, then why not join our community where it's often discussed? If you want to find out more about that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is a long-term asset fund? Now, if you're listening to this and saying, I've never even heard that term before, you're almost certainly not alone because this is a very, very new thing. I'm not convinced it's a good thing. Strong start. <laughs> so maybe we should explain why it's a thing. Yes. Government wants to fund infrastructure projects, so they see all of this lovely capital tied up in pensions. So wouldn't it be great if we could get those pension funds to hand over some of that capital for these infrastructure projects. Hopefully, those projects will stimulate growth in the UK. So that's a justification for it. And this is a new type of open-ended fund that's authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority. So it's different from an investment trust, and it's different from a unit trust and an OIC. It's a whole new thing. So the problem with open-ended funds, we touched on it at the beginning of the podcast, is that there's a liquidity mismatch you can sell the fund faster than the fund can sell its assets. So there's a lot of money running out of the door. They have to sell the assets. They can't sell them quickly enough. So often they gate the fund. They say, look, nobody else can pull out their money until we can sell some stuff. So it could happen that a lot of people want to sell. The fund's like, I've got these shopping malls and office buildings. It's going to take me a year to sell them. If I do it any quicker, I'm going to get a depressed price and you're not going to get all your money back. And a lot of UK property funds have gated recently for that very reason. And the most notorious example is the Neil Woodford Fund. So this new type of fund, the long-term asset fund, is open-ended. So you'd think, OK, it's going to have this liquidity mismatch problem again. But no, the FCA is saying we've done something to try and solve it. We've squared the circle. So if you're going to sell your holding, apparently, you're going to have to give a minimum notice period. And for LTAFs, LTAFs, it's going to be at least 90 days. That's a minimum. 
So that gives the fund manager a little bit of a window to try and sell some assets if it needs to, to pay back investors. Is that the idea? I think so. And I think it's not going to work. Because if you imagine that it's a property fund, for example, which buys bridges, well, having 90 days notice that half of your customers want to sell their holding is not going to make it possible to sell your bridge or your bridges. (laughs) So literally, if you believe the NAV, I've got a bridge to sell you. So I guess it is a minimum period. If it was a bridge investor, then presumably they'd have a longer period, but it's going to make the fund less attractive. Yeah, I think when I read through the FCA's documents, it was keen to stress that we're setting this as a minimum 90-day period, and it's up to the fund manager to set a longer notice period if it needs it. But you know what the fund management industry's like? 90 days is almost certainly going to become just the default, (laughs) isn't it? Because if there were two, it's going to be harder to market one with a one-year notice period. Because if there were two funds, one had a 90-day period, the other one had a one-year period, it would be clearly very tempting to buy the one with a 90-day period. Yeah. And there's also not going to be daily trading. So the FCA says that fund managers must not make redemption determinations more frequently than once a month. So it's just trying to slow the whole process down, I think, without resorting to gating. Though these funds could still be gated if the 90 days isn't long enough, right? So let's say that there is a distressed market, then by not looking at the price, you can pretend that it isn't selling off. Now, I don't like things where you just get a price update once a month because you don't know if things are going south. At least with a normal investment trust, you get daily updates on how things are going and the information percolates through the system really quickly. And the share price is a great way to see what's going on. But if you're getting monthly updates, I'd just be thinking, well, I know there's a problem in this sector, but I don't know whether it's affected my investment yet. And I'm also just thinking with this whole scheme, well, what's the point really? What's wrong with investment trust if you're trying to do this investment in infrastructure? So the FT had a quote from Richard Stone, who's the chief executive of the Association of Investment Companies. He's the guy responsible for investment trust, so he's not going to like this new scheme. (laughs) It's taking money away from him. But he says, there may be better ways into infrastructure, notably via the tried and tested investment trust. They have tried to solve a problem that has already been solved. And he goes on to say, Woodford Equity Income Fund and problems in the open-ended property sector have shown how much harm liquidity problems can cause retail investors. Selling LTAFs to retail investors remains an accident waiting to happen. But they are launching. This has been in the works for six years. And the first long-term asset fund launched in February this year. That was a Schroeder's fund investing in renewables and other infrastructure. And Aviva's also launched a fund investing in real estate. So, you know, it's happening. And a lot of pension money is presumably going to be going into these funds. I think this is an example of something that would be better funded with municipal bonds like they have in the US, because there at least the bond comes with a maturity date. So if you buy a bond which has a five-year maturity, you just understand that that's the liquidity of the product. And there can be a secondary market in the bonds themselves, and it provides capital for the infrastructure project. So I think that would be a better way to invest in these things rather than a perpetual instrument, which is effectively what a fund holding is with a liquidity lock-in. Yeah, I'm not well informed enough to really have an opinion, but I do notice that a lot of the messaging coming from the government about these pension reforms, the mansion house reforms they talk about, I try to kill two birds with one stone and I fear they'll just miss both the birds. So they're trying to say, 
it's going to boost growth and investment in infrastructure, which they can kind of do by dictat by forcing the pensions to invest in these funds. But they're also saying the returns will be better for investors. Now, that's the key bit that we care about, obviously. And I don't see how they can really make that claim. It's not guaranteed, far from it, that infrastructure is going to outperform the broad stock market, for example. And what's really galling is that the government has put a little loophole into the cap on pension fees. So there's an annual 0.75% cap on annual charges for auto-enrolled pension savers. That sounds like a good thing. It's quite a high cap. Like 0.75 is a pretty chunky fee, but there's a cap at least. But for these long-term asset funds, the performance fees that go along with them are exempted from that cap. I don't like that. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.